Gaming on the Frontier. This is Bruce. And this is Trav. Welcome to the to Gaming on the Frontier, your podcast of finding out where your next piece of bread, however encrusted uh, and and wet and um, you know where where did you find this, Trav? Hey, don't look at me. I'm allergic to mold. I didn't pick it up. Yeah. <laughs> this week on Gaming on the Frontier, we are Heading out into the wasteland, well, you know, whatever wasteland that might be, we are doing post-apocalyptic gaming. Now we got to talk about timeline because, you know, like everything, you know, some some disasters are they have a lifespan. You know, zombies are probably one of the most like that because, you know, I mean, zombies are going. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, once you've eliminated all the people that can turn into zombies, except the few that figured out a way to survive, then the people who actually have brains are going to be are going to have a big advantage over the ones who do not have brains. And if you don't have magical zombies where they are, you know, they're immune to things like decay, okay, then all the things that normally would that try to eat us and, and our body protects us from, or we go and put bandages on and things like that, they don't do that. So they get an infection. It just keeps grind, you know, eating away at them. Zombies would probably die off within a year in any, quote, realistic scenario. You know, even if you just ignore the whole part about where they're getting their energy from, you know, what, how are they, you know, they, they're, they have no bloodstream. They're they're just a you know like I said, the the, the Walking Dead. You know it, it's it tries to act like it's scientific, but it, they've got people dragging their upper torsos around, yeah. and that just doesn't work. You know that's that's a magical zombie world. <laughs> so they just they just keep it on the down low. That's yeah. all. Yeah, you, know, you got to die before you turn into them. You know they just I just love when they went to the uh, CDC. You know and. Uh, and the guy was trying to explain to them that you know that the, that the disease you know reanimates a, a, the 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 hind brain of the brain, and so that's why the zombies are able to come back because it's a very low it's a very low energy area, you know. But so they're able to still survive. And I'm like, yeah, but there's no blood, guy. <laughs> there's no blood going there. The heart's not beating anymore. You know what? Anyways. <laughs> It's, it's it's definitely it's you know it's great you know, zombie shows unless they're magical you know or curse of some kind you got to turn the brain off. Well, it's funny you know, because literally, literally. <laughs> yeah, you got to turn the brain off about a show where the brain's turned off. Yeah. Um, yes, exactly. It's funny that the CDC actually put out rules in case of a zombie apocalypse. Right. Now I'm looking at this. I see this. I go, this isn't funny. If you're trying to be funny and be humorous, that's not funny. 
All this tells me is that you've done something wrong and you're actually trying to warn us. Way to go, CDC. Yeah. <laughs> they actually are trying to warn you because the, the way the zombies operate and the way they threaten uh, in, in, all, in all these scenarios is the same way a flood does. So if you're prepared for zombie apocalypse, you're prepared for a flood. Well, then put it out as a flood. Don't actually because put nobody would nobody would read that. It, Bruce, that's that that that's it's too it's too dry. Nobody would have read that, but they read about hey, let's get ourselves prepared for the zombie apocalypse. Yeah, because The Walking Dead's so popular. Problem is, all yes. tells me that there's something in the CDC which is going to cause this, and they're trying to warn <laughs> us now. And well, I like I this, said, Bruce, it's going to hit you before it hits me. I'm up in Detroit. Uh, <laughs> I, yes, and and I happen to know you know, how bad the facilities are at the actual real CDC. Oh. So uh, I know people who work there and they're like, yeah, my my lab is a is a shelf in the um, in, in in the bot closet. Oh, I'm literally working next to an open drain and 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 someplace where they go and rinse out mops before they clean the floors. Yeah, see that that does not bode. Now they're they're not working with the the class four whatever viruses that they have to have the suits on and stuff. No, we're just talking about people who are though taking all kinds of samples and various pathogens that are known on the earth. You know, you know various yeah. um you know various parasites and other things like that. Yeah, they're they're doing petri dishes and all that stuff and just leaving them sit there and just with a big sign saying "Don't touch or you'll die." Yeah. I had that in my biology lab, you know, when I was in college, where we were taking microbiology, and some people decide that they weren't going to just, you know, do paramecium's and stuff like that. No, we're going to go and 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 culture strep. Oh yeah, I've heard about people who do this in school, and I'm like, really? You're another yeah. good life choice, there, buddy. Yeah. Well, you know, it's some of them could have been grass. I mean, there were literally shelves. Uh, that they have these things hanging from them saying, do not touch my samples, you will die. So, oh, what was the it, one that I'm hearing now? It's like, well, yeah, if you turn, you know, forests into cemeteries and just bury the bodies and let the nutrients feed the trees, and, you know, it's like the archer thing. Do you want zombie trees? Because that's how you're going to get zombie trees. Yeah. <laughs> I saw that. It's like, okay, I like burying the ashes in a pot and then the ashes grow and feed. No, they just want to dump the bodies in a hole and let that feed a forest. And yes. they're going, well, no, because that way then you won't cut it down because grandpa might be there. Yeah, it's a zombie tree. Stop doing it. <laughs> Cue the Jeff Goldblum quote from Jurassic Park. Right. He, the but actor it, is even saying, don't do the dinosaur thing. Yeah. <laughs> you it? know, Can the whole time, he was... He was channeling my uncle. My uncle, for years before that movie, was saying things like, "You know, before you do something, you sh you know, you should say just because we can do it doesn't mean we should do it." Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. This is a guy that was had, had been sitting on an aircraft carrier, waiting to be deployed, land deployed onto uh, onto Japan when they dropped the nukes. Oh, okay. So he was like, you know, he was actually a big proponent of nuclear weapons at the time. He said, yeah, believe me, you know, I, I appreciate the fact that they did that because I didn't, they, I didn't have to, you know, beat up the, do the same thing they did over on the Normandy, you know, on Japan. Yeah. Because we would have been doing that. Well, yeah, so, the whole island hopping campaign in the Pacific. Yeah. Just, yeah. Like, yeah. He, he had to deal with that. So Ooh. he was, he was very glad when they dropped those nukes. Well, uh, and, and I was like, yeah, but okay, get over it, okay? Dude, yeah. 
<laughs> been Let 40 years. from the war, Unc. Yeah. Yeah, right. So anyways, most biohazard-type situations, most zombie-type situations, your adventures are going to take place literally right after it happens because it's not going to be very long before it resolves one way or another. Maybe a few months, maybe a year at the most. Yeah. Yeah. The, unless, of course, they're magical, in which case it's like, like risks. In other words, then in that case, it's going to last forever. Yeah, well, that would be, yeah, that, that we'll talk about rips later. Um, okay. A few so, years, and I'm right. like, okay, The Postman, yeah, that was another post-apocalyptic Kevin Costner movie. I think that actually came out before Waterworld. And then, uh, yeah. No, it, okay, I don't, I don't remember. It's been so long. Yeah, but, yeah. okay, Lucifer's no, it, Hammer? It, it, all, I know is, all I know is it came after Dancing with Wolves, because that's what put him on the map. Yeah. Okay, Lucifer's Hammer? Yeah, the, um, essentially the thing comes and it crashes down. It's, it's an asteroid. And it lands and it basically demolishes uh, the west coast of America. Okay. Uh, uh, through mostly, you know, uh, rainfall. Basically yeah. floods the whole thing out, okay? And then, they spend, and then they spend years afterwards basically trying to put it back together again. So, I mean, the, the initial thing is like the first half of the book. But then the second half of the book is where you have these wandering bands of raiders that are basically trying to take what they can from various people. Then you've got the, the people that are united together in farming communities to try to stand against them and the troubles they have of, of trying to keep things going like, you know, like uh, the Mythbuster guy. And so, yeah, the second half is, is very much of a couple years afterwards okay. where they're, they're, they're trying to start a new civilization. They're trying to start a, uh, you know, basically, in this case, the old civilization. And the, the ace in the hole that they have is they have a working nuclear power plant. Ah. Which, and, they're, and they're basically saying is that no matter what happens, we have to protect this nuclear power plant because if it goes, then... Our kids are going to be, you know, hitting each other with with clubs. But with this nuclear power plant, we have, you know, the ability to machine. I mean, they they, they needed a new part. They went to the machine shop and made it. They have forges there. They have electricity. That means they've got computers. That means they've got, you know, heart-lung machines. I mean, they don't, but I'm just saying you can plug those in, Okay. The the electricity part of it is so overwhelming, you know, they're saying no matter what happens, these raiders or whatever, we've got to stop them. Well, it's and, like the, um, now granted this was, this would fall into the next category, but after the bomb setting from Palladium, you had all these cities of mutant animals and they were best, you know, recovered from what the humans had. Then you had the Empire of Humanity which basically it was the dominant human nation up in New York, what was upstate New York. And they had a working fission reactor, and that's how they had basically power armor and mecha, and that's how they subjugated the mutant animals all throughout the um, northeastern United States along the seaboard, is because they had the weapons because they had the working fusion reactor. So yeah, that, that's an example where because they had that electricity, that that access to electricity they could make all this massive tech where the mutant animals otherwise were living in maybe pl4 19th century tech if not lower 
Yeah. I mean, some of them were it, almost at a medieval or renaissance level standard. Right. I mean, if you ever have to say higher or lower, go lower when it comes to tech. Yeah. After a, after an apocalypse. Yeah. Because you might have because most of the people that have higher tech are people that are basically holding on to scavenge stuff yeah. that are still working, but they don't have the ability to replace it. In some cases, not even repair it. It's a lot easier to make a bow and arrow than it is a gun. Yes. Yeah, because you don't have to mine wood. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's uh... okay. So um, uh, so anyway, you know, and, and when you do the few years later, okay, there's lots of stuff for you to scavenge. Because, you know, it's still there. Buildings haven't collapsed under their own weight. Uh, cities haven't turned into, you know, um, uh, you know, basically uh, uh, Animal Kingdom in Disney World. Yeah. You know, where you got, like, trees, you know, and, you know lions walking yeah. down Main Street and, tree, you know, trees growing out of, out of buildings and other kinds of things like that. Nature has not uh, absorbed... The all you know all the works of man back into it. Okay, there are roads that are still usable. You know that haven't you know fallen into complete disrepair. Uh, you you can still there's there's still satellites up in the in the atmosphere that you can might be used. GPS might still work. You still you'd be able to maybe communicate with people at a distance. Uh, you know. Oh 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 oh! There is. I want to say it's called After Planet Earth. It was a series on like Discovery or Science Channel, whatever, and it showed called After Man. That thank you, the one where it showed. Oh, this is after the collapse of man, twenty-five years, fifty, a hundred, five hundred, a thousand, and you're right. seeing like it could be a street in England down, going down a hill, and after a hundred years. The water has eroded the street to where, like, just the edges on the side of the road are left, and it's just this gully with water running down it. The houses on either side of the street are collapsing. They're just mounds now. Yeah. If you if you can find that series, After Man, which I'm sure a lot of these channels now put it out on DVD. Right. You can find it, watch it. it it's a wonderful example if you want to fashion a post-apocalyptic Earth setting. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yep. So, you know, so th that's the good thing. You know, the bad thing is, is that, you know, there's still going to be lots of people who are eking out a living who are going to be aggressively defending the little that they have. Yes. Yeah. So, and you're going to, so you're going to have raiders and all those other things that, you know, you might find in, in most apocalyptic, you know. Now, we see lots of movies where, of course, it all seems to take place in a, in a, in a desert because that's because there was lots of desert to film in in Australia. Yeah, Mad Max, folks, Road Warriors. <laughs> but most, but most would not be in a desert. You know, you gotta have, gotta have water. You know, you gotta have some food. You know, though I did like what they did in Fury Road. They actually kind of made that make a little bit of sense, because they had this huge well that they were getting all their water out of, and they were using it to grow these massive arrays of plants for people to eat. Oh, okay. Yeah. That, you haven't seen that either, I guess. Yeah, I saw Mad Max, and that was years ago, and I think a bit of Thunderdome. Uh, yeah. Well, the 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 new remake is basically like the it's like the um, I think it's like right after uh, the second Mad Max film with the where they have the refinery. Oh, okay. Okay, and then and then this and this is the, the what comes after that. 
Uh, they, they never go to the third one or anything after that. So uh, certainly not beyond Thunderdome. Uh, anyways, it's uh, it's got the same guy that uh, was uh, Tom Hardy, uh, played, yeah, from Venom, the, the, Pun- the Punisher, yeah, yeah right. right. So okay, uh, anyways, that's uh, that's a few years, okay. But then you go to the next generation, and uh, that's essentially what is the basis for Fallout One, uh, because yeah, that would be after the bomb. That's what that would be because it's like basically one or two human generations later is what after the bomb would be. Yeah, yeah. I'm 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 thinking that Fallout One actually takes place quite a bit later than that. Uh, next generation. Hello. What? Hello. Are you not hearing me? No, uh, you cut out for a bit. Okay, sorry. I, I said that Fallout Seventy Six is actually like twenty years after the bombs dropping. Okay. And it takes place in West Virginia. But um, I'm just saying. But I know that uh, what I'm looking for is basically people. It, 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 things have not gotten better then they've fallen into tri- a tribal state at this point. You know, the next generation would be, you know, you and uh, your, your kids basically, you know, doing their best to, to you know, you're, you're now horse-drawn plows again. Uh, you're uh, probably riding horses or possibly some, some well-maintained bicycles, but mostly you're going to be on foot. And, uh, you know, you're be some a burden primarily not being used for carrying you, but for doing work in the fields. So, uh, and technology, like I said, all that technology has, has, you know, if you can't maintain it, it's gone because you can't keep it safe. You know, the water, you know, is the, the roofs over all those warehouses has collapsed and the water's run in and turned all the insides of all those pieces of electrical equipment into uh, rusted mush. Okay. You know, and the batteries have gone bad and leaked out, and a lot of those places would actually be toxic. Buildings have collapsed. You can't even go into cities because you could be walking along, and a building next to you could collapse on you just from the fact, you know, it's, and you certainly wouldn't want to fire off a gun because <laughs> that would cause other types of things to happen. So if you did, you know, if you were still scavenging at that point, you're just scavenging on the outskirts. At some point in the future, you might go into the cities to go and, and try to harvest things like metal, like the you know girders and beams and rooftops and things like that to bring back and melt down into you know more useful things. But nobody's living in cities if you know unless they've been able to stabilize at a higher level of technology. Yeah, re- get get electricity going, get you know things fixed and yeah, yeah. If you happen to live next to a coal mine, okay, then you'll you're in good shape because you know that that's that's going to provide you with 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 heat during the winter. It's gonna that's going to provide you with enough fire to actually work metal. Uh, it it might actually be enough to to create a uh, a uh, steam uh, uh, a steam tractor. That you could use to, you know, move move around and and and, def- and, and defenses as well, you know. So, uh, it's something high energy like coal compared to just wood is a big fact is a big plus. So yeah, if you happen to be right next to coal country, you know, this could be a real benefit for you. Yeah. But things are really falling apart at this point. You know, it's it's everything's still in free fall. Um, you're probably not. Uh, stable yet, you know. It, it, and uh, if you're, if it, if it was me, you know, I would be heading for 
you know, the Great Lakes, you know, <laughs> the, the one of the largest natural sources of fresh water and oh, yeah. uh, and with arable land around it and uh, close enough to major cities that there would be probably good salvage. And, uh, oh, yeah. you know, and, and uh, or, you know, you say, depending upon what kind of disaster we're talking about, being real close to a nuclear power plant would be a good thing. Yeah, and we have, um, well, actually, two within two hours, we have uh, Fermi down in Monroe, and actually, we are talking, Jeff and, you know, Pixie and Jeff DeRep can look out their front window and look at the Davis-Bessie nuclear power plant in Oak Harbor, Ohio. You drive down Route 2, and it's right there, and you turn off into their complex just before you turn right where it's at that end of that turn. So yeah, there are two power plants just here, Detroit, within, as I said, it takes me 90 minutes to get down to Jeff and Josie's, and maybe 45 minutes, you know, Fermi's halfway down there. So yeah, uh -huh. there's at least two nuclear power plants just in northern Ohio, southern Michigan here. Okay, and then we move on to number four, years later, where the world is stabilized, you know, into some new form. You know, societies have rebuilt new nations, new political entities. Yeah, yeah, new religions. Yes, and mostly the apocalypse was an event. Oh, you know, my great-great-grandfather survived the big crash, and he and his progeny helped rebuild what we are today. And there is, and I'm going to find it because I have it saved, because it is a wonderful article. Beautiful car. Ah, here we go, yes. Um, this is an old Dragon Magazine. Folks, go and find Dragon Magazine issue 277. It, the cover, it says Age of Steam, and it has a female elf, red hair, red dress with the bodice and everything. And it has an article. I believe it is called Post-Apocalyptic D&D. It has a, it, it also talks about adventuring through other eras of history renaissance modern day and it does post-apocalyptic where oh look we have these strange metal eggs that you throw them and you have to remove this small piece of metal and throw it and it's like a fireball or we are walking through this tunnel and there are these strange sconces along the wall that are not lit i.e a sub tunnel with you know light bulbs smashed out the egg that makes a fireball is a grenade um oh look there are zombies, and they're all wearing these tattered green uniforms. Soldiers that were zombified. It is right. a wonderful article, and I believe it was written by a contemporary of myself and Bruce's, Mr. Steve Kenson, who worked a lot on Mutants and Mastermind. So if you can find, back at, you know from back in the day, Dragon Issue 277, if you want to do a post-apocalyptic game like D&D &D and have it where... Oh, yes, the magic is actually, you know, technology from six, seven, eight generations ago. That would, and it also has the Greyhawk 2000 setting. They basically modernized and made Greyhawk into techno magic. But yeah, it's a very good article about post apocalyptic gaming. And I want to get to the page. Uh, where was that? Yes, Future Fantasy is what it's called. And yeah, Steve Kenson. Uh, Greyhawk 2000 is written by Philip Athens. And also, Steampunk D&D is in there, too. So, yeah, it's a good article, but for the future fantasy is what you would want to read that for. Page 55. Just find that. If you can get it, 
somehow eBay or whatever or what have you, that gives a fantastic reference on post-apocalyptic gaming if you want to do a D&D style. Where you can say that the elves and the dwarves and the gnomes and the halflings and orcs and half-orcs are just mutated human races that now breed true. So, yeah, another little tip there for yeah. going on the subject. And it would be where it's years later and the technology for... I think the Shannara series is post-apocalyptic. Terry. Post oh, it is. Yeah, so that's another example where it's yeah. vastly far in the future and technology are these relics that you find... Right. Oh, one more thing. Another Black, thing. Black Blackmore is supposed to be in uh, yes, far in yes. the future. Oh God, yeah. The the tech in that was re yeah. Um, I just blanked on now what that what else there was that was um. Uh, oh, they're from a uh, Fat Goblin Games, and it's a Pathfinder supplement. Now, as you know, Pathfinder has done a lot of work on technology. They have added technology more to role playing games than any other incarnation of D&D or OGL game. A third party supplement has branched off of the technology guide and it is called Call to Arms Fantastic Technology. Where you can do you're a D&D, you're in a Pathfinder D&D society and it gives you the option there are three options how you can grow technology, you know, get technologically advanced. There's arcane discoveries where the wizards are all doing it. There's divine intervention where you have an, a god of like steam or machine or artifice or creation and they're granting it to their followers and their priests or precursors gifts and it would be like the post the future fantasy meant article i just mentioned where yeah you're a, you're in the little village in the mountain valley and you know that outside of the mountains the ancestors lived and you go there and you find out that you're bringing back all of this technology from these lands and it's actually time-worn technology as they put in the path but call to arms fantastic technology even gives you the ability and if you use the kingdom rules from ultimate campaign which are wonderful you can progress your little medieval village over the course of years and go through the you know the month cycles that ultimate campaign does in five years, if you run it right, you could end up at least Renaissance, if not Steam Tech. So yeah, that's another post-apocalyptic gaming with that PDF I just mentioned. You can have post-apocalyptic adventures and then that'd be a way to have this years later, but still repercussions because the theme of the, the, the campaign could be over the mountains or where the ancestors lived and they we lived here and we've prospered. We're going to go check out and see what the ancestors left behind. So yeah, Fat Goblin Games, Call to Arms, fantastic technology. That matter of fact, I use that in my campaign currently. So, But yeah, that would be a perfect example of that type of post-apocalyptic game if you wanted to do fantasy. Or even if it were just non-magical and if you wanted to rebuild and use that theme. Um, right. Let's but see. the the point here is that you still want there to be enough of the old world left that you still have these callbacks. Yes. You know, like you know, like the the Planet of the Apes. Uh, you know, especially the second one where they you end up going into the bunker and such. Uh, yeah, but you you want that because that's what that's what says this is a post-apocalyptic adventure. Because if you're just going into basically the equivalent of Gamma World, where it's so far in the future that you've got all these mutated animals, you've got people in power armor, but they might as well call it D&D &D with matched armor suits. 
you know, and uh, dire yeah. wars. You know, it's it's there's nothing really left of the old world. So that part still has to be somewhat recognizable by the players, if not necessarily by the characters. You know, as you say, what is this? What is this thing? I I it, it look it looks like um uh, oh let's see here it it. it, it it looks like an exercise device where you use to toughen up your hands, but when I squeeze it, light comes out of the end of it because it's a pump flashlight. Yeah, yeah. You know, or 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 maybe they even have like and they'll call it like a grip torch or something. You know, they'll come up with right. their own name for it. Yeah. But maybe they run into a cache of uh, uh, of those chemical uh, light sticks that still work because nobody broke the, uh, yeah. uh, you know, because the plastic was in a dry place and didn't rupture and the, uh, uh, and the glass hasn't broken, but you know, they, maybe they don't work too well because enough moisture has evaporated through the plastic yeah. that it's only like half filled now and they're not quite as good. So, but there's still something there that yeah. you can work with. Yeah. I wanted to make uh, a rave joke that in order to activate the, in order to activate these light sticks, you had to say the magic words of oons, oons, oons. But, yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay, so let's go on to our last section. Yes. Which is campaign styles. Which is basically what you, the player, want to do in this post-apocalyptic world. You know, what what kind of uh, adventures do you want to go on? Because, you know, and, it, and basically the... Campaign style you choose is also going to determine when these things happen, you know, uh, and and a lot of the other things. But they're pretty broad, so we could probably work out. Uh, the first one is Raider. So that's you basically going out there and dominating. Uh, well, it's, it's you going out there and stealing stuff from other people. So you got to have scarcity. Uh, yeah. It would take place probably pretty soon after a zombie apocalypse or those kinds of things where there's not enough for everybody and the only and you have to take it away from somebody else or you're going to die maybe if the few years after that at the most too yeah yeah because because any later than that then it's all going to have worked itself out the, yeah. the you know, you're you're you killing people they're killing you you're going to end up you know with with basically a, a, a population that the surrounding area can support. Yeah. You know, it's only at the very beginning. You know, you also ha can do the cool stuff where you're using the, you know, you get the Mad Max vehicles, you know, yeah. you know with the armor you put up on top of it, and you can make some fun flamethrowers because there's, now that there's only like one-tenth the population, gasoline is everywhere, and it's really no good. Because it, it uh, gasoline uh, gels after a while, but it's probably pretty good for pumping out of a out of a flamethrower. Yeah, you know, or you have it in buckets. You know, it's like and you uh, and you hurl it and it explodes and catches on fire. Yeah. So yeah, you got all that Mad Max stuff going for you. You know, and uh, and of course they're doing the same to you. And uh, may, you know, hopefully you're a little better off than they are because you're the player characters. Yeah. You know, and, and it's all about basically trying to make sure that your kids, your people, are going to be the ones that become the dominant force in the area. This is, uh, if you know, a the other. If you're more of a of a good, you want to play a good campaign because that because uh, raiders is not good. It's going to be neutral at best. Yeah. Uh, then you might go to the second one, which is the scavenger. 
where it's you trying not to run into the Raiders or fighting the Raiders when you have to. Yeah. But otherwise, you're just trying to find stuff that you can bring back and make your life a little bit easier. Find that medicine. Find those, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, those light bulbs. Yeah, D20 Apocalypse has very good rules on scavenging. Now, granted, they abandon the wealth system and they go on a thing called trade units. But yeah, they have a lot of good rules for going into old structures and they rate the structures like, okay, was this indirectly in the blast zone? Was it away, like 100 miles away from the nuke? Um, yeah. What was it made out of? Has it been scavenged before? And you you roll on perception. Well, it's search in D20 Modern, but if you adapt it to Pathfinder, it's perception. And yeah. you can, um, depending on how, you know, what type of building it is and what type of perception roll you make, you can find food, medicine, ammo, fuel, um, electrical and mechanical parts, which are part of the trade units that you can use to either do craft and repair checks or just, you know, sell to get stuff. So yeah, yeah. Um, scavenging, it, it allows your tech players, and I've got more than a few who are techies, and they do scavenging and they have fun because I use these rules and they're like, oh, cool, I found this and this. Oh, Trav, I want to make this. And I'm like, crap, okay. Yeah. But yeah, they, I think I think the most fun campaign for post-pilot would be scavenging because right. you get to really just find the cool stuff and let your imagination go on what you can make. Right. You're going to have to have a reason for why, you know, an over an overarching reason, you know, as to what you're trying to do, because otherwise it probably won't last as a campaign. Well, like just going... using the um, the aforementioned PDF called Arms Fantastic Technology and the campaign model Precursors Gifts, you're exploring the ancestors' lands and you're bringing back all these gadgets. And if you use the kingdom rules, you can reverse engineer and make your own gadgets after a while. Granted, it's a slow climb. You're starting out at medieval-level technology, and it takes a while to get to Renaissance, steam, information, fusion, gravity. You know, I'm using the ages as per the... They use tier 0 through 5, and I've learned to correspond it with the modern and future progress level. So, yeah, it takes a while, and it, 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 it could turn into a long-term campaign. If you're running the campaign rules and you go out and get more stuff and you reverse engineer it, yeah, you could have a scavenging campaign that could last years, you know, game years and possibly real-time years, mm -hmm. and you could watch your little village grow into a city. Right. Because people are coming and going, oh, they've, they've, they've mastered the ancients, you know, ancients and the ancestors' magic that was hidden over the mountains, and look, they now have... Water, every, every you don't have to go to the well anymore to get water, and you just, you know. They have aqueducts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that stuff is even in um, Ultimate ultimate Campaign. You can uh -huh. build a society that way, but with the uh, third-party PDF, you can get out of the medieval and get into the Renaissance and go from there, and that is a good longitudinal campaign. The GM does all the kingdom rules and everything, and the players are the ones, oh, we're going to go explore. We found this map, and we're going to go explore this this tunnel complex that was off to the north, and you find out it's, you know, an old underground military bunker. And that's right. where you find the military dressed zombies and all that. So, yeah, a scavenger campaign, that would be if I wanted to run post-apocalyptic, and I've done it a few times and just it diverted and went to another type of campaign. But that would be, that's the one I'm most comfortable with. That's just me. Because you get to let the techies have their fun. You get to 
watch them go, yeah, I have this sword, but now I've got this sword that you clip, you flip a switch and it cuts through metal. Mm -hmm. Because it vibrates, you know. Ooh, vibroblades. Yeah, exactly. Probably one of the coolest weapons out of Rifts, yeah. Yeah, and, and, we, and, and we've got them for real now. I found this. Yes, they, yeah. Yes, and I'm just like it's it's not small, but it, they do exist. Yeah, it's it, it's it's they produce a lot of heat, and so they uh, they're they're very they're very large. Yeah, well, so uh, but, but 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 they they can make these really they can make these really precision cuts though. So yeah. uh, they actually use them in things like. Uh, uh, in, in food in, in food prep, they'll yeah. actually like take a cake and freeze the cake, okay, uh, like a, a you know, like a Sara Lee cake, and then yeah. they'll take this thing and they'll cut it into slices in the box and then steal the box over because it can make this really tiny cut and it, it will not in any way damage the cake as it slides through it because it's it, it, it does it effortlessly. Oh, okay. so, yeah, it's uh, or. You, you, I've seen it used in, in metal shop kind of work where it makes oh, yeah. all these little tiny cuts, you know, and, and such that, that would re otherwise require a laser. And lasers can't be used for everything because, you know, some metals just will dissolve if you hit them with a laser. Oh, no, I found this other knife that basically toasts the bread as you slice it. That's cool. Yeah, no, yeah, oh. well, you know, that's just, well, no, hey. That's very cool. Hey, saves on counter space. If you got a kitchen like mine, I've got a galley kitchen. You know, All you right. do that, it's like you cut that, you, you get the thickness you want and the way toasted you want. Win-win situation. Anyway. Right. Then we have the uh, military campaign where you're essentially, um, you know, you're imperialistic. You know, you, you've, gotten your, you've gotten your act together and now it's time to you know, bring the enlightenment to the natives that are in the surrounding areas and so forth. Bruce, two words, and it is probably one of the most popular post-apocalyptic games, and I'm surprised, shame on, you know, and this is me slapping my hand, shame on us both for not saying it earlier, Moral Project. Yeah, yeah sure. I'm surprised that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, uh, we would, everyone we, I've ever seen play that game it does not play it according to the way the book reads. Well, it's, yeah. It's, I mean, it's peace through superior firepower, and we're, 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 you know, we're bringing uh, civilization to you at the end of a, of a gun. Whether you like it or not. Yeah. Beating yeah. continue until morale improves. Yeah. It's, yeah. Now we're talking about my work area. <laughs> Your work area. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, and so you'd be probably, you'd be sent out to basically pacify areas. You to, you know, so in a lot of ways, it'd be like D and D because D and D at its heart is is small uh, squad combat. So you know, you'd be sent out to go and take this area, and you'd be going against the indigenous population. And I'm sure that the indigenous population are probably slavers or something. So you don't feel bad about you know doing something to them. But also the fact is that if you know that if you bring them into your um, you know, in, into your civilization that they have better lives. They'll have, you know, sanitation, they'll have medical care, they'll have dentistry. Yeah. Uh, you know, they'll have all the things that make life over the age of 20 uh, uh, enjoyable because that's when things start breaking down. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I'm sure that a lot of people that were in their 40s, you know, or 30s, they, they didn't die, uh, uh, you know, uh, of natural causes, they committed suicide because they had impacted with, they had impacted teeth from, you know, from disease and infection, 20, and they just uh, couldn't could take it anymore, and they just basically drunk themselves to death. Bruce, I'm, I'm sure both of us now can say this because I've joined the Half Century Club. Three words: twenty good times. <laughs> <laughs> 
20 was good times, sure. Uh, sure. Uh, well, okay. Uh, well, I was younger and I could move better. That was about it for me for 20. My reboot, okay. my reboot was 10 years ago. But anyways, military... Now, see, military, you could go... Military, you could work with any of these three other styles. You could be military at the core and then all of a sudden go, Raiders, you know what? We got the guns. Might makes right. Or wh what was it that Mao Zedong said? Uh, power is comes out of the barrel of a gun. Oh. Yeah, Mao Zedong, you know, the Chinese. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that, I think that was one of his phrases. Um, scavenger, let's say you're military, you're moral project, and you wake up, and you're trying to re-piece together technology to supplement your own. Because, yeah, you woke up out of the bunker, and you're driving around your ATV and all that. Problem is, you're, you don't have an unlimited supply of ammo or guns or food, so you're still scavenging. And... For the fourth one, rebuilding. Again, if you're using OGL, the aforementioned fantastic technology re precursors gifts comes into play here. You've had a post-apocalypse. That's the whole point of it. There was an apocalypse and you are using those tech rules to rebuild. If you are doing the moral project thing and you have the military, those project people probably also had scientists and technicians and medics in their group so therefore they would be going going okay we're awake and we see that these people are malnourished they're dehydrated they've got radiation sickness other diseases that we had cured we need to go out and help rebuild their society not only to cure them now but to keep this from ever happening again or as little as possible so i think the military actually is the one where you could mix the other three and just it's this with a side of the other, one of the other three. I think you could really, the military is that just plays to all the others. Yeah, and the military can also be where you have a large raider force coming against you. You're the defenders and you yeah. have to, you have to beat them off or, you know, or turn against their masters. You know, if they're using a large slave force, say, if you join us, you'll be free and, and, and maybe get an uprising. And say, get them my cronies. Yeah. <laughs> this is bring me my brown pants <laughs> <laughs> yeah you see i'm wearing the red bodysuit that way then you can't see but see he thought ahead he was wearing the brown pants. <laughs> yay deadpool yeah <laughs> yeah he wasn't the i i before that <laughs> no yeah no it's the old joke yeah. about the pirate captain right. yeah and then there's the final version which is rebuilding yes where it's all about you know, and, and this and this is what Moral Project is supposed to be, and you, yeah. and certainly you can play it that way if you can find the like-minded people. I've never been able to. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. They, they're too enamored with shooting things with their high-power rifles. Uh, but uh, anyways, there's the rebuilding. It's basically going and and uh, turn, you know, raising up the people around you uh, into uh, a, a better life, a better world, and possibly. Um, if you can, you know, there might be some outward thing. Let's say the aliens arrive and say, well, you know, we thought about like, you know, uh, uh, you know, asking you to join our civilization, but you screwed yourselves over so badly. I'll tell you what, if you can, you know, get a, you know, get to this tech level and this, this level of, of, of civilization in let's say a hundred years we'll bring you aid and bring you into the galactic federation and then you're like oh cool and so you have this ulterior motive to keep trying and and, and really try to to make deals with people that you otherwise might just say people are just too stupid i'm just going to shoot you it's like we need okay and because they might have something useful it's like yeah we've got all this you know these old laboratories that we've built our complex in but you guys have a source of energy that we can use to power these laboratories. 
we can make weapons and technology for all of us that'll profit all of us. We just right. have to work together. Yeah. Yeah. Now, did you ever look at the uh, uh, the mapping uh, tool that was in the back of uh, Rogue 417 from TriTech? It's been a long time since I've cracked that open. Okay. Well, it's, it was kind of pretty, it was probably cool because what you had was you, it was using hexes. And so you'd have six hexes with a center hex. Yeah. So total seven. All right. And what you do is, is that you'd go and roll to see what was, what each hex was. Whether you know what is you know whether it was a town or a field or whatever like that you know and 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 you roll up various things like you know what 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 resources are in these areas okay but then what you do is is that when you were done go and look at what they all had and you'd come up with a numerical number and if it was high enough it would increase the the bonuses of the central hex because. And maybe it could then say, well, this central hex, because of all this other stuff that's around it, it actually has a working generator. This is or kind of, actually, okay. This is kind of like the, the the kingdom rules and ultimate campaign are something similar to that. Yeah. You have for your kingdom three stats: economy, loyalty, stability. Uh huh. The buildings you build, the the terrain improvements you do, and not just the ones in ultimate campaign, but also the ones in fantastic technology. If your love tech level is high enough, you could build a graviton reactor if you're uh, at tier five, which helps you. Ultimately, you're going to end up having space travel, which is like the pinnacle of this entire tech table. And so these terrain improvements, um, these kingdom hexes are 12 miles across, so it's like 95 square miles of land per hex. And you put all this stuff in your hex, all these terrain improvements and your settlement. And there's one settlement per hex. So you're going to have at least, you know, like 8, 10 miles in between different. And, you know, you can have multiple hex kingdoms. It's part of the rules. But, yeah, the way you mentioned that just now in Rogue 417, it's like, oh, there's a river here and we can put a mill and make a generator. And over here in this hex, we've got farms. And over in this hex, we have a mine. I'm right. seeing very similar to what they did with ultimate campaigns kingdom building right and say and once you do the first set then you do another circle of hexes around those okay and then use all those to again you know boost you know boost or subtract from the 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 center hex of each each one oh yeah because the subtle and besides um the three stats economy loyalty and stability in the game master guide they rules for settlements within the kingdoms and they've got Six stats for that. Corruption, crime. They had to change the other economy to productivity. So corruption, crime, productivity, law, lore, and society. And the buildings you build using kingdom rules also affect the settlements that those buildings are in. So depending on what you build and what you have, you've got your scores that affect the kingdom as a whole and the scores that affect all the settlements in each hex of your kingdom. So yes, I see how that works as well, that you build not only your entire land which is your kingdom which could be three hexes you know 12 miles across each along a river well if you have a mill that will raise your productivity because you're able to grind grain and it will lower your consumption score which every kingdom has build points so what they would do is you have certain buildings you make that help decrease monthly consumption by your population and those build points also oh i'm going to use you know two build points or three build points to make a block of houses for this town or you can make one build point and there's tenements so a lot of low rent housing and Mm -hmm. depending on what you build the unrest in your kingdom could be lesser or greater you're gonna have a lot less unrest if you have better housing 
if you build tenements, that unhouses that unrest is going to rise, and the unrest stat affects in the end your economy, loyalty, and stability for your kingdom. If you've got three settlements in your kingdom and all of them are tenements, trouble in River City. The T rhymes with P, stands for pool. Some of you younger people might not get that reference. Contact me if you want the information. Anyways, <laughs> but all these stats that you have for what you have in your kingdoms as you build this kingdom using these rules, both kingdom and settlement. They came up with settlement rules first in Game Master's Guide, and then they vastly expanded upon it with the, king, uh, the kingdom building rules. So if you want to run, you could even use it with D&D. You know, again, Pathfinder 3.0 and 3.5 are all compatible. If you want to use this stuff to make, to augment during a post-apocalyptic campaign, these rules would work wonderfully for that because it helps you progress and do a rebuilding campaign. Oh, we got blown back into the into the, the, the medieval ages. Well, over the course of a couple years game time, we're going to get back up to, you know, steam tech then you all will be sorry you know <laughs> yeah because you know as, as 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 military technology improves it improves for everybody all boats rise at high tide yeah yeah i've had to explain that when using the tech rules and they said well, why is it you know when this goes up all these other go up and i use that phrase and they sit there for a second and they're acting like i just you know granted them a secret a fundamental tenet of the universe i just handed it to them on a silver fly go think about it robo technology i said i use that robo technology you, that alien starship landed, all science has got a boost. Metallurgy, yeah. chemistry, electronics, um, quantum leaps in computing, energy production, because you had to rebuild the infrastructure to make, you know, you had to have higher energy sources in order to make these new mecha. Um, metallurgy, the new alloys to be able to have the Veritex. And, you know, energy production, because the protoculture was given off energy, therefore you had... So, yeah, if you raise up one science by virtue of the basis of science and technology, other disciplines do have to follow. If you're doing a post-apocalyptic rebuilding campaign, yeah, you're, not only your weapons are going to get better, but your medicine has to get better because, well, you fight the bigger war, you're going to have a lot more hurt. You have to be able to treat them better. So if your warfare rises, so must your capacity to heal said soldiers that get hurt in that war. But yeah, I think the rebuilding, yeah, in a way the rebuilding could be as fun as the scavenging and you could use those linked up too. These these four things that Bruce put up here, you can play them independently, or it's, you know, a little from menu A, a little from column B type thing. Really get a post-apocalyptic campaign going where your players have, as Bruce would say, tons of agency because they're the ones helping rebuild. They have a hand in what... And I did this in the Star Wars campaign where they, they were on the planet, and it's like, okay, I, I sat there and talked with Josie and Ben and Colleen. Okay, what do you want? What discipline do you want to fight for next over the past year or the next year? And of course, Z's playing the bounty hunter. He says gunpowder, and my character is going no engineering or physics. And he's like, well, you being a slicer, you would say that. I said, well, yeah, but these people need to know how to build stuff before they know how to blow it up. It's easier to destroy it than to create. And Z and I actually got into it a little. I mean, nothing mean, but we got in a little bit about this discussion using, you know, trying to rebuild these people from, you know, the society that got blown back twenty thousand years ago. So yeah. It will give your character a lot of role-playing opportunity because you having agency in the rebuilding of the society you're in, in this post-apocalyptic setting, whatever you use, if you give the players the chance to be the ones to decide, you can push where the society is going to go. You can sit there and say, yeah, well, we make these guns, so we're selling them to everybody and, you know, we're getting rich and so we can get stuff. Or we're making medical supplies, therefore people come to us when they're hurt 
and you know big business there so yeah you can you know if you let your players in a rebuilding a post-apocalyptic society campaign giving the players agency you can really help a society grow because they will tell you okay we want to go this route we want to be the gun makers or we want to be the healers or we want to be um help make vehicles to help move people around you know all that so yeah you can mix and match these four raider scavenger military and rebuilding and just really have wonderful campaign arcs. I'm seeing the potential for a lot here. And as I said, this podcast, Bouncing Ideas off Mr. Shepherd, as I do every two weeks now, has kind of given me a new love for trying to do a post-apocalyptic game. As I said, I played very few of them, and I did a little bit in my Star Wars campaign. This has opened my eyes to new campaign ideas I'm seeing now, just in the... Well, approaching three hours we've been doing this. So, yeah, I, I think that for me, though, personally, Scavenger and Rebuilding would be my two favorite um, campaign styles for a post-apocalyptic game because it gives the players the most agency. It lets them be the most creative. That's just me. I mean, again, your mileage might vary. Uh, I'm sure I agree with you because, I mean, I like you know, playing the good guys. Yeah. So yeah. both both of those are, are, are morally higher ground than than arguably the one you know, the raider or the military. Yeah. Uh, you know, though, of course, I'm sure many military-minded people would disagree with that. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's, I, I'm just, you know, so game setting, uh, you, you really got to ask your players what you what they want to do and make oh, yeah. sure that you, you're, you're going in that direction because uh, if, they, if, if they buy into it, the way you really want them to, then they'll start like you know doing research on their own. They'll start saying, "Well, you know, what we really need is we need to learn how to make glass, or we really need to uh, you know uh, make better pot, uh, you know, pottery." Or hey, you know, these you know we're coming up against a, a large you know a large amount of bad guys, and there's only 15 of us. Okay, why don't we go over to that textile factory and make like a hundred dummies that actually look like people and uh, and and will and, and and give us the appearance of having a large force of of, of of soldiers with us. So you know you can you can uh, use the tech that you do have and the resources that you run across to you know all kinds of if you hand one of these guys like a Rand McNally map circa 1950 you know and it's it's now a hundred years later it still would be mostly accurate because those old secondary roads are still there even yeah. if all the if all the uh, uh, um, super highways aren't there anymore and and matter of fact the super highways were, are impossible to maintain after an apocalypse while people would still be clearing yeah. You know the, the the debris and the wreckage and stuff like that off secondary roads. Bruce, I don't know if you remember the old chains, the pure gas stations. Sure. Okay. Funny story. I'll make it quick. My grandmother and I were going to go up north, up to the near the thumb of Michigan. You know, we're downriver, so it'd be like about an hour and a half, two hour trip. My grandmother let me be the navigator. I was like nine, ten, eleven. I find this old map from the pure gas station. So I got to be navigator. Grandma got to drive, I got to be the navigator. And we're following the map and all of a sudden they say, yeah, go down this road. We turn left and there's 696. It's not on this map. I go, Grandma, how old is this map? Well, Robert, the pure gas stations, there aren't around anymore. Said, you gave me a map and I finally found it, 1958. Yeah. If you've been to Detroit, folks, 696, um, the Ruther Freeway, was not around in 1958. It's a relatively recent addition within my lifetime. So, yeah, needless to say, the maps are mostly correct, as Bruce said. 
there might be some slight changes in 50 years time heck that was a 20 year old map or 25 year old map and there there was a freeway there that wasn't on the map (laughs) just so as soon as you said that i'm thinking grandma that damn pure gas station (laughs) you got it oh oh no (laughs) but yeah so but the map will still mostly be useful there was the land you can came on that gas station yeah that looks like a gas station okay that's we're in the right direction yeah so yeah that's another thing for post-apocalyptic finding caches of of old data libraries universities mm-hmm. cool houses yeah one of the things in rips was the town of new laszlo was built on the ashes of ann arbor where u of m was detroit was gone it was toast but ann arbor it was a satellite community of Laszlo, which is Toronto. New Laszlo, as I said, they're constantly unearthing things from U of M's vaults and libraries and school buildings. And so it became a technological nexus in the Midwest in Rips, North America. For those of you who play Rips, you know about New Laszlo and what's there and everything. So yeah, that's another thing that not just tech, but the writings that have the science behind the tech. That's even more important. Information is power, and it is not. It, it doesn't become more evident than in a post-apocalyptic game. Because he who has the book that tells how to fix will tech. That's the one you got to try to find. And they will guard that, like, because they realize it's like, yeah, we're the ones that know how to rebuild all of this technology. The engineers and the doctors, and those are the ones that are the important ones. That's why these guys who say, yeah, we're going to feed you. What are you going to do? Well, if you tell them, well, I used to work on cars, I was a mechanic. You're going to get a place, you're going to get the three slops and a flop because you're going to be spending 8, 10, 12 hours a day fixing up old vehicles Mm -hmm. because you have that knowledge. But if they've got, let's say you go to an auto parts, okay, I'll use my own experience. Let's say you go to an old um, post-apocalyptic auto parts. There is a brand of auto repair manuals called Chilton's. If you walked in and found the rack with the Chilton's books there, yeah, you have power because you are able to fix a multitude of old vehicles and they have them for every year every make every model ford chrysler gm foreign cars and a lot of them the years are the same you might find a chilton's manual is like 2000 2006 of a certain model they're pretty much all the same they'll stick with the same design for five six seven years and then change it up some and then Mm -hmm. you have to have a new chilton's manual yep but yeah in a scavenging campaign, the one thing better to scavenge for than parts and half-destroyed machines and the parts find them is the knowledge of how to make that stuff work. That's the goal. That's and if I'm... you and if you are a doctor, yeah, they're gonna lock you away because you're too valuable to be walking around. Oh yeah, exactly. Well, why do you think in most uh, uh, civilized nations, doctors are off limits? At the most, you can take them prisoner. You cannot kill them. It's just kind of an unspoken rule among armies even today as long as they got the white the the red cross on the white band on them you have a better chance of staying alive because they use you just as much as your side oh yeah now if you fire back all bets are off and there are they doctors do carry guns i mean no self-defense at best and only a last resort but yeah as long as you're a doctor and don't draw that gun enemy won't touch it but yeah in a post-apocalyptic setting as i said the highly skilled people are the ones that they're more valuable than, you know, oh, we have 100 labors. 
but we have an engineer and a doctor over here. They're going to probably deem that that engineer and the doctor are probably worth more than those 100 laborers from time to time. Yeah, those 100 laborers might be able to build things, but the engineer knows how to build things better, and the doctor knows how to keep all you guys healthy to help us build. So information is the best and most guarded commodity in a post-apocalyptic campaign. And most portable. Yes. I mean, you be the person who has the steam engine, but uh, which is really which is really great if you want to like make boards for buildings and things like that. Uh, there's a whole movie based on that. Uh, but uh, you know, it, it's not easy to move around. <laughs> and but if you have the knowledge, like I say, if you have medical knowledge, if you have chemistry knowledge, especially if you have chemistry knowledge that allows you to make you know weapons of war like you know mustard gas and things like that you become a huge tactical you know in, um uh piece in somebody's uh, army and they'll take take really good care of you as long as you're willing to you know do those sort of thing i i just it, it didn't occur to me that well, i mean information's always power what you know you know but in a post-apocalyptic campaign it takes on a whole new meaning because that is the key in building said society even if it's just your town, just, you know, your area there by the river or your little mountain valley. If you, you know, hold up there, you know, the information on how to reclaim that technology or make new technology is going to be the key that wins the day, so to speak. Mm -hmm. All right. So uh, that's pretty much it. You know, we, we had another thing of apocalyptic real world examples, but I think we could let that go. Uh, we just know that, you know, for a lot of native tribes in this world, they they uh, they're went through a real apocalypse. Their world disappeared when uh, people from other countries came in, yeah. and uh, they they and they can literally say, "I now live in a post-apocalyptic world," you know, based on the the loss of their own culture. And, and as they use their knowledge from ancestors and records and oral traditions to try to reclaim that culture. Yeah. So uh, so you can. It's uh, if you want to see what it's really like uh, for that to happen, uh, you want some real-world examples, then go talk to people that have, you know, who are no longer, you know, where the native, uh, the people who lived there two years ago are no longer in control of their own country. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's uh, they'll give you a lot of insight that you wouldn't normally have. But uh, we want to thank everybody for listening to us. And if you've got some more ideas about this, I mean, there are so many examples. We just, you know, we could have spent another hour talking about different video games, different role-playing games oh, yeah. that all do this. And all I can say is that if you like the, the whole concept of, of, of basically picking up the pieces or trying to fight against the dying of the light, uh, then post-apocalyptic games are, are, you know, are really meat for your soul. And we yeah, recommend nice, it. Nice Dylan Thomas reference, by the way. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so uh, uh, head on out to your uh, your library and your uh, civil defense uh, uh, bunker and all those those strange, you know, weird old guys that uh, have all the guns in their houses and, and uh, you know, uh, talk to you through a slit in the door. Those people actually might, you know, be able to help you out next campaign. So talk to them, you know, invite them over for a, a, a session and even a couple of lectures. And you may find that, uh, you know, your campaigns get even better than you could possibly imagine. So, and you might get them out of their house and, and, and actually add another player to your group. Oh, yeah. And that's always a good thing. Oh, yeah. So 
We're going to have more ideas like that and hopefully some even crazier, nuttier ideas than we've already talked about, which you're going to have to wait until next week. So until then, this is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there. So go explore them. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Gaming on the Frontier podcast is wholly owned by its hosts. It is released under the Creative Commons 3.0 license. No commercial reproduction and any use of any element of the podcast must be attributed to the Gaming on the Frontier podcast. Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org, colon 8027.